Thank you, Mike. Perhaps you remember the short children's story about the little boy who made a little boat. And he got some pieces of wood and he kind of carved them out and glued them together and made a little boat. He worked very hard with his little tools and produced what to him was a very special sailboat. He even put a little mast on it with his little sail that he attached to the boat. He painted the sailboat just the way he wanted it. One day he went down to the lake nearby to sail it. He placed the little sailboat in the water and it actually sailed. But then a strong breeze carried carried it along, eventually got beyond his reach, and then the sailboat went out of his sight. He was sad about losing this little prize of his own craftsmanship. Several days later, he was walking through the town he lived in, and he noticed a little sailboat for sale in the window of a shop. It was his sailboat. He went in and told the shopkeeper that it was his, and he he tried to lay claim to it, but he was not believed, however, and the man behind the counter demanded that if he wanted this sailboat, he'd have to pay for it. He'd have to buy the very boat that he had made with his own hands. He went home, he, he broke open his piggy bank, and he found that he had just enough money. So he returned to the shop, he put the money money on the counter, and he bought back his little boat. It was surely his then, twice his, he said, because he not only made it, but redeemed it. Made by the Creator and redeemed by the Creator, that's really the story of Christianity, is it not? The God who made us bought us back. And at the heart of our passage that we're looking at this morning is a correct understanding of redemption. You see, our our agenda in society is redemptive. Our responsibility is not to moralize the unconverted. It's to convert the immoral. Our message is redemption. Well, what is redemption? Redemption. Well, look with me at the passage that Mike just read in 1 Peter. And if we're to fully understand the impact of God's call in our lives, we must begin with this oft-neglected word and concept and truth, redemption. And so I want to read the last four verses of that passage, 1 Peter 1, uh, 18 through 21. I want to read that again to you, verses 18 through 21. Jump in towards the end of the passage here. 1 Peter 1, verse 18. For you know that it's not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, but, verse 19, with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him. And so your faith and hope are in God. Now it's in verse 18 that we find our word redeemed. Redemption has to do with the purchase by payment of a price. 
It focuses on how God bought us from bondage to sin and that he paid the price for us. The line of thought in redemption is this. Sin calls for justice. Justice demands a price. The price justice demands is death. Redemption then for the sinner comes through death. And by the blood of Christ, we have been redeemed and declared not guilty. Christ's blood alone paid the price of our redemption. It is the substitutionary sacrifice of Jesus Christ, the lamb without defect or blemish, it says here, that set us free. We are free. We are free if we know Jesus Christ. And Christ came to give his life as a ransom, meaning he purchased uh, our freedom by his own shed blood. We have been redeemed, it says in this passage, out of the futility of life. See, without Christ, you're headed nowhere. You're like the, the song, a real nowhere man, sitting in his nowhere land, making all his nowhere plans. <laughs> that describes you, if you're an unbeliever. That describes you before you came to Christ. You were going nowhere. And then Christ took us out of the emptiness of our life and he moved us to a life with purpose. We have purpose. Redeemed. And nothing else will make sense this morning if we don't place these commands that we're coming to in this context. God calls the redeemed to live a certain way. To call those who do not know Christ to what Peter speaks of here is a chronicle of despair. Our theme for our study is First Peter, in First Peter's living life on purpose. And if we are to live in hope, as we saw our first week, it will require intentionally attaching our hope to forever. And as we saw last week, living life on purpose when it comes to troubles in life requires choosing an intentional response. Rejoice begins with a choice. So live with intentionality. Live with purpose. Live life on purpose. Why? We've been redeemed. And that brings us to verse 13. And verse 13 begins with the word, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13, First word is, therefore. Therefore. Now, if you've been around Scripture for any length of time, you know what to do with the therefore. We are to ask, what is it there for? And we need to ask that. So as we come to verse 13, what is it, what's that there for, therefore? Well, we mustn't forget what came before it. Peter has just taken 12 verses to celebrate salvation. And it's in verse 13, we find a dramatic shift from stating facts to giving commands. We come to the first commands in this letter, right here, verse 13. Now, in the NIV or or most translations, if we were to look for commands, we're going to likely find five or, or six commands here. But in the original, there are really only two main commands in this section of Scripture. Only two main commands, and then phrases or participles that support each of those commands. So the flow of thought is, you've got to stay with me on this. The flow of thought is, since we have this glorious salvation, since we have been redeemed, we have an obligation. We have been given life. We have been given liberty. What then is to be our pursuit? 
Happiness? Those of you who are called, those of you who know Christ, since this is what has happened, this is how you should live. And it's a twofold responsibility that he brings out in this section of Scripture. It is set your hope fully on his grace and be holy in all that you do. Those are the two main commands in this section. Set your hope fully on his grace. Be holy in all that you do. Let me summarize it this way. The source of our hope is grace and the standard for our holiness is God's. The source of our hope is grace, and the standard for our holiness is God. And so that really forms my outline this morning, that first of all, I want to look at the source of our hope is grace. The source of our hope. Now, as I've already stated, the first of two main commands is found in the middle of verse 13, when it says, set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. And Peter's first command is totally dependent on all the grace he's been speaking about in the first 12 verses. Since God has called you, since you've been given a new birth, since you've been given a living hope, since you are guaranteed an eternal inheritance, since God is keeping both the inheritor and the inheritance, since God is refining your faith, since God has purpose for the trials in your life, therefore, hope fully in this grace. That's what he's telling us. Now, don't even begin to attempt to live out these commands in this section unless you first hope in grace. But by all means, it tells us here, hope fully. Hope fully. It's a command, hope fully. It's a call for a decisive kind of action. Hoping in grace doesn't come by passive observation, but by active participation. As Howard Hendricks loves to say, I've never met a Christian who sat down and planned to live a mediocre life. (laughs) Most don't set out to live a mediocre life, but by not living with intention and not living life on purpose, our life's going to default to what? Mediocrity. But none of us said, starting tomorrow, I'm going to live a mediocre life. No one says that. But if we don't live life on purpose with intentionality, guess what? It's going to be mediocre at best. But what turns that around? How do we avoid slipping into apathy and indifference and lukewarmness? Hoping fully in God's grace. See, it's not just hoping, it's hoping fully. Hope fully. Do you hope fully or would you be considered a moderate hoper? Are you satisfied with just a half-hoping heart? I can take this, this half-hoping heart. I mean, honestly, we get so engulfed in the world that we're half-hopers. We secretly hope that Jesus doesn't show up for a while. I don't say that out loud. I mean, if Jesus showed up tomorrow, would would we see that as an intrusion into our lives? We struggle to have our hearts set on hope fully. Set your hope fully, it says. Well, how do we stir this hope within us? Well, Peter doesn't leave us hanging. He provides us with two ways that we are to do that. These are the the commands there that modify the main command. First of all, we stir up our hope as we prepare our minds for action. It says in verse 13, prepare your minds for action. Well, what kind of mind is a prepared mind? Well, it's one that girds up your loins. Huh? 
The passages say gird and loins. What in the world does that mean? That's how some translate this phrase, and it's an accurate translation. We just don't use that phrase. See, to gird up your loins is a picture of those in ancient Near East who who wore garments which were like robes. And they would be long and flowing from the shoulders down to the sandals. And often they were made out of wool and, and quite heavy, and as such they offered protection from the elements. However, because of their size and and flowing dress-like nature, those garments were not very well suited for activities which required much movement. Now, if you don't think this is true, just watch bridesmaids or or the bride at at the next wedding you're at and see how well they move around. It doesn't work too well. I mean, good for standing around, but, but not for doing anything. And so, so in the ancient days, if they had to move rapidly and they didn't want their robe flying all over their place, then what they would do with, with their garments when it came time to move in a hurry is they'd take the corners of the robe, the corners of the robe, and they would stuff it into a sash or a belt, turning it into a, a mini robe of sorts so they could move quickly. Turn your robes into running shorts is the idea. And one example of this is found in Exodus 12 when God told his people as they were preparing to leave Egypt and eating the Passover, he says to them in verse 11, I read it earlier this morning. Now you will eat in this manner with your loins girded and your sandals on your feet. In other words, be ready to move, be ready to go. If we are to stir up the hope in us, it means that we, are, we look forward to the forever at any moment, but we're ready to go. Nothing is holding us down. I said to you before that a lot of us are going to be raptured feet first because we're holding on to everything. You know, I want to take it with me. We're so attached to this stuff. Are we ready to go? Are we ready to go? And notice Peter speaks to our minds being prepared for action. Conversion is to be a mind-altering decision. We are not to lose it between the ears once we become a Christian. Well, how do we develop a mind that produces hope? Well, hope happens when our mind is feeding on what? Truth. Truth. The passage goes on to contrast a mind that's prepared for action with our minds before we came to Christ. And it says, before Christ, an unconverted mind is filled with ignorance. Verse 14. And that's why I say conversion is a mind-altering decision. One who professes to be saved and yet thinks the same way as always should question that profession. Feed on God's word. Loved ones, are you feeding on the truth? Is your mind prepared for action? Are you feeding on the truth? Because if we are to stir up hope in us, then we we need to prepare our minds by allowing the truth to clean up all the the clutter that's in there. There's a lot of junk in there during the course of a day. Are you pulling up all the loose ends of of bad theology and tying down what you believe so you're prepared for action? See, we don't need any more even jellyfish Christians, okay? You know what I'm saying? I mean, with with their feet planted in midair. We don't need that. There's too much of that. Prepare your mind for action. George Whitfield was speaking to a man about his soul. And he asked the man, sir, what do you believe? And he replied, I believe what my church believes. White Whitfield then asked, and what does your church believe? And the man answered, the same thing I believe. (laughs) 
Whitfield pressed further. And what do both of you believe? Oh, we both believe the same thing. (laughs) That's not going to cut it, folks. It's not going to cut it. That's a mind not prepared for action. That doesn't stir any hope in us at all. How do we stir up hope? Being prepared in our minds. Secondly, Peter says, be self-controlled. Or some translate this phrase, be sober. The idea is that if we want to obey the command to set our hope fully in God's grace, we should not allow our minds to become intoxicated. And while our first thought would immediately go to drunkenness, there are many other things that intoxicate and numb the mind to spiritual reality. See, when a person is drunk on alcohol, it distorts reality by causing the mind to be insensitive to what is true. It inhibits alertness. To be sober-minded, to be self-controlled, is to be spiritually alert, thinking clearly on truth, to be in control of your mind and to be well-disciplined. You cannot be intoxicated on the things of this world and at the same time passionately pursue hope in God's grace. You can't. So here's the point. Anything that numbs your mind to God is to be avoided. Anything that numbs the mind to spiritual reality and truth is a hindrance to setting your hope fully on God's grace. And that may be alcohol. Oh, but it may be soap operas and romance novels. It may be other sexual input you're allowing into your minds that's inebriating. It may be your career. It may be some hobby. It may be your position. It may be an ambition. It may be praise of people. It may be entertainment. Any of these things and more can intoxicate and numb the mind to spiritual reality. What is it for you? Because whatever that is, we should avoid it. That is if we are to live self-controlled lives and set our hope fully on God's grace. See, hope is an obligation for believers toward God because of his grace. I need to get to the second command here, the second obligation for those who are redeemed. Because not only is the source of our hope is grace, but we move to our second command, and that is our standard of our holiness is God. The standard of our holiness is God. What's our standard? The story is told of a man who, who rushed into a suburban railroad station one morning and almost breathlessly asked the ticket agent, when does the 801 train leave? <laughs> At 801 was the answer. Well, the man replied, my watch says it's 759. The town clock says it's 757. But the station clock says it's 804. Which clock am I supposed to go by? Well, you can go by any clock you wish, said the agent, but you cannot go by the 801 train because it just left. <laughs> she missed it. What's our standard? What's our standard? We can miss it by that much because we're not paying attention to the right standard. Follow along as I read verse 14. It says, As obedient children, do not conform or better, pattern your life. Do not pattern your life to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. Now, in other words, redeemed ones, obedience characterizes your life. So if I'm disobedient, does that mean I'm not God's child? We're talking about a pattern. Obedience is our pattern. Disobedience comes in and breaks the pattern. So when we disobey, we do a 180 and get back on the right track again and obey so we can get, have that right pattern established. 
We should not act like we used to. Don't act like an unbeliever, it says here. And not only should we not act like we used to, to act, that's in the negative side of this. Peter directs us to the positive side in that we are to act like God. We can never reach the extent that God is holy, but in some small measure, we can have the same kind of purity that God has. Put simply, if I was going to boil down verse 14, I would say it this way, leading into verse 15, stop doing what we used to do, start doing what God does. So Peter says in verse 15, I want you to follow along with me here, verse 15, But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy. Now get this. So be holy when you feel like it. That's not what it says. So be holy only when others around you are holy. So be holy when you are treated fairly. Be holy when you're in church. Be holy when things are going well for you. Be holy by looking holy on the outside. That's not what it says. See, the Pharisees had the activity part down very well, but they were far from holy. See, it's none of those things. It says, be holy in all you do. Can't squirm out of that. I can't offer you another word in the Greek that says it's not all. It's all. Christian living is living permeated by holiness. It is to be holy in the morning. It's to be holy in the afternoon. It's to be holy in the evening. It's to be holy of every moment, every decision, every thought, every word, every response, every deed. See, we have cheapened the meaning of holiness by shrinking it down to a list of do's and don'ts and focus on outward behaviors. We've shrunk it, we've missed it, we've minimized it. We are to be holy in all that we do. See, we're interested in heaven. We're interested in health. We're interested in happiness. We may even be interested in helpfulness, but are we interested in holiness? Why should we be holy? Peter tells us, verse 16. Why should we be holy? For it is written. He goes right to the word of God. We do not need any other reason for being holy than that. It is written. We make it so complicated sometimes. Why should I forgive? Well, you you see, when you don't forgive, your insides are going to be a mess. And then you're going to develop this ulcer. And then when you get an ulcer, you're going to be miserable and you're going to be no longer happy. So you should forgive. No! You should forgive for it is written. Forgive as Christ has forgiven you. Why, why, Why should I stop talking about that person behind his back? Well, well, you see, when you do that, then people who hear what you say might, might tell so-and-so, and then it's going to start spreading all over the place, and, and then you're going to have this big mess on your hands, and, and you won't be happy. No. Why? For it is written, do not gossip. Why should I give money to the Lord's work? Well, you see, if you don't give money to the Lord's work, then, then people can't get paid, and if they don't get paid, then you'll no longer have a ministry happening here. And, and besides that... 
When you give, you'll get so much more in return and you'll be happy. No, give because it is written, God loves a cheerful giver. Why, why, why? And we give all these explanations to try and convince you all good reasons why you should do this and why you should do that. Listen, follower of Christ, for it is written. That should be good enough. Either we follow this book or we don't. We can't say, well, I follow the good parts. (laughs) The Christmas story, mm, I like that one. Easter, mm, love that one. Those parts over here, this, nah, not so much. For it is written, Peter says, and he reaches back to the book of Leviticus. Now, tell me, other than those who went to Doug's Sunday school class on the book of Leviticus, when's the last time you opened up that book of the Bible? The message is clear in Leviticus. It's all about holiness. We struggle with Leviticus in part because we struggle to see how beautiful holiness is. Holiness is beautiful. Waiting until marriage is beautiful. Purity in marriage is beautiful. Faithfulness is beautiful. Reconciliation is beautiful. Turning the other cheek is beautiful. Loyalty is beautiful. Why? Because the God who made us knows what is best. And when he says, wait, wait. When he says, be truthful, be truthful. When he says, flee, flee. When he says, strive for unity, strive for unity. When he says, let go of that hurt, let go of that hurt. When he says, release that earthly possession, release it. Because God understands what it means to be holy. And holiness is beautiful. And God expects us to be holy. Now, don't walk away from this morning and this command to be holy and work on the externals or you miss the point. To be holy is not some checklist that I follow or certain activities I do or do not do. We got a great uh, ethic of avoidance going on. If I just avoid these things, then I must be holy. That's only part of this verse here. We're to pursue something. That's holiness. See, holy actions are to flow out of holy attitudes. And verse 16 continues, For it is written, To be holy as I am holy. We are to be holy because God is holy. God is the standard for holiness. We ought to pattern our holiness after him. Now, I don't know about you, but this verse, be holy as I am holy, is one of the most intimidating verses in Scripture. Holy as God is holy? Do I have a chance? To say that God is holy means that he's separated from sin and he's devoted to receiving all glory and honor. And so as his obedient children, walking in the, in the power of the Holy Spirit, we ought to pursue, be pursuing a life of separation from evil and committed to a life of righteousness, desiring to bring glory to him. It is tough to be holy in such an unholy world, is it not? Easier in here, hard, very hard out there. Guy King wrote, In such an age as this, when there's abroad so much loose thinking, lax living, and lopsided teaching, few things are so important as that Christians should be men and women of the Holy Bible. A man flew into Chicago. He hired a taxi to take him downtown. 
as he was riding along in this taxi, they came to a red light, and the taxi driver went right through the red lights. The man said, hey, that light was red. You're supposed to stop. And the driver said, yeah, I know, but my brother does it all the time, (laughs) whatever that means. Soon they came to a second red light, and again he went right straight through, and the passenger said, you're going to get us killed. That light was red. Why didn't you stop? The driver said, don't worry about it. My brother does it all the time. They came to a green light, and they stopped. (laughs) The man said, the light's green. Now it's time to go. Why don't you go on through? And the driver answered, I know it's green, but you never know. My brother might be coming through. (laughs) I like that. Sometimes it seems as though, as though the world is going on red and stopping on green, and, and, and we can't make sense of it. They're all confused. They're all confused. We're saying, oh, I'm not going to do that because my brother doesn't, or this church doesn't. See, we can't be making it up as we go. God is the standards. We ought to be holy because God, the God who has identified himself with us and has given us his grace is holy, and he's worthy Get this, he's worthy of holy children. And as God's children, our desire is to honor him with our lives. And Peter speaks of a healthy fear we're to have as strangers living in this world. Verse 17, I don't have time to get to that. We're going to talk about strangers living in the world in another section. But I do want to draw your attention to this one thought there. We're to have a healthy fear. It's an awe of God. A knowledge that we will stand before him someday that should compel us to honor him by living a life that is worthy of his name. It is a fear that doesn't drive us from him, but a fear that drives us towards him. There was a school-age boy who found himself in a little peer pressure to do something wrong. But he refused to go along with his friends. And so they began to taunt the little boy with this comment and that comment. One boy said, ah, you're no fun. Another said, ah, you're just a coward. One boy said, I know, he's just afraid that if he does this, his father's going to hurt him. The boy answered, no, I'm not afraid that my father will hurt me. I'm just afraid that if I do this, I'll hurt my father. The more we strive to be like God, the more we know him intimately, the more we fear to offend our Heavenly Father, a holy God. It is to live with the fear of the frown of God upon our lives, as one pastor put it. Life, we've been given it. Liberty, we've been redeemed. What then should be our pursuit? Let's pray. Lord, forgive me for any way in which, I don't know, just minimized your holiness or didn't flesh it out enough, whatever. My puny mind can't get around it. But that's not an excuse. It's not an excuse for living sloppy theologically. It's not an excuse for being irresponsible in how we live and just chalking it up to, hey, we're human. True? And sinful at that. But we've been redeemed. We have the power of the Holy Spirit living in us. 
We don't have to give in to that stuff any longer. So may we not cut ourselves slack where we often do. May we not just write this verse off as one of those impossible verses and we can't ever achieve it, so why even bother? But may we strive to know you and to know you intimately. And then we know, God, that as we break that pattern of obedience, it will grieve us because we know we have grieved you. Help us to live holy lives set apart for you, consecrated to you, and to pursue that because we have been redeemed. Thank you for this church family. Thank you for my brothers and sisters in Christ. Help us to help each other to live holy lives, to spur one another on in that direction. Not for our sake, but for yours. In Jesus' name, amen. You're dismissed.